I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 23. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Life in Dub podcast. I hope everyone's doing okay out there. As usual, I want to say a big thanks to all the regular listeners and all those that get in touch with comments and suggestions for Life in Dub. If you do want to get in touch, the easiest way is to email me, vibronix at gmail.com. There's really quite an archive of shows building up, and the best place to look back on these is at the Life in Dub website, which is not surprisingly, lifeindub.com. There you'll find links to SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the usual listening links. This week, I want to talk a bit about the last release we put out on Scoops Records, the third reissue in the Gold Disc Classic series. This time, we've brought back probably the most popular track we've ever made, Rastafari with Professor Natty. Sorry to all the people that tried to get a copy of the 7-inch, but it took me totally by surprise to see them all sell out in a couple of hours. But fear not, we have ordered some more copies and they will be back in stock soon. The tune itself had a bit of a journey of its own before it came out in 2012, and there's a bit of a story behind it. You see, it started out as a remix that me and Richie Roots did for, of all people, the fun-loving criminals from New York. Their drummer Frank is actually a Leicester guy, and he asked us to remix a track for them, so they sent over a vocal, and we made this rhythm for it. But also around that time, we'd been organising regular dances with Jartobi's sound system in Leicester, and had become friends with Professor Natty, when he was their main mic man at the time. He offered to voice us a dub plate, so I gave him that rhythm that we'd just made for Fun Loving Criminals, and he came back with this Vibronic special that went the V, the I, the B, and every time we played it, people would message me asking, what is this tune? The reaction was always great. So I called Prof and said, we should try and make it into a releasable track. So what about fitting some different lyrics in that same style? And that's when he came back with the R, the A, the S, and the tune that we all know was born. And as soon as it released, people seemed to go crazy for it. It's definitely a commercial kind of jump up tune. And musically, it's a bit different to the deeper root stuff that Vibronics usually releases, but it became an instant hit and it's still the tune I get most asked for. So thanks to all who contributed to it, to Richie Roots, to Professor Natty, it's great to see it living on. And like I said before, it will be back in stock soon. This week, my guest is Neil from King Shiloh Sound System. King Shiloh really need no introduction, Amsterdam's Healing of the Nation sound are legends in the scene with a history that goes back years and years. Me and Neil have known each other a long time and we dig deep into his personal journey. And it's really interesting hearing about Yorkshire, Amsterdam and even Ethiopia. Now, as can happen, we had some technical issues with the recording. Welcome to trying to record podcasts in COVID times. So about 20 minutes in, we had to move over to the backup recording and you'll really notice the difference at first, but please stay with it. I think you'll soon get adjusted and you'll carry on enjoying the Shiloh story. There were even crackles and problems in my recording here at the end, but we made it through. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. So Neil, King Shiloh Sound System, Welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Yeah, give thanks, Steve. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, you know. All praise to his imperial majesty, Emperor Heliae Selassiei. Yeah, pleasure, bro. Pleasure. Um, how was your uh, your session at the weekend? Because I know you're doing your weekend things. Oh, yeah, the radio session. Yeah, bless. It's just going from strength to strength, you know. More and more people are showing appreciation for what we're doing. And as it goes further and further, we're realising it's kind of... Not that it's becoming a permanent thing because we know we know the lockdown gonna finish one time, you know, but until such time 
we're kind of happy to spread our vibes and share the music. You know, my record collection from 40 years, I can share it to people. It's such a pleasure, you know. And give and give people give people some positivity, man. In these dark times, you know. Well, people are trapped at home, so it's like okay, you might not be hearing the sound like like you're hearing a true sound system, but at least you're kind of connecting with people and realizing that you're not kind of on your own in your own space. Everyone else is out there doing, you know, kind of trying to reach out to people. Yeah, for real, bro. And that's so important that people don't feel isolated in this time, you know. And by playing music and on the on in the way that we're doing it you know through the live stream and connecting people from all over the world it's absolutely amazing you know because it, it most of the world is in lockdown so they need to connect with each other still we need to feel the vibes of each other and we need to spread like i said that positivity amongst people you know and say don't get down man it's all right this thing we will overcome it yeah, you know we've got to try and help people out where we can you know and yeah uplifting man. people but listen, what what, yeah. I'm, what I do at the beginning of the podcast is I ask yeah. everyone the same question. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, you were just talking about 40 years of collecting records and playing music and whatever. And it's like, Same. I like to ask people about a tune that, that's that's really important to them, something they look back on and think, you know what, that tune kind of changed things for me, like when I heard it or whatever. So I was wondering if you've got an example of, of a tune like that. Why, see, that's a big question, though, it's Steve, you know, for a, sound, for a sound man, because we have so many favourite tunes, you know, through the years, starting way back in the 70s, right up to this time. But, yeah, like in the spirit of the, of the Healing of the Nations show, I'd go back to a revival selection, you know, original roots coming from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Even the 80s, I'm talking about tunes like Conquering Lion from Yabby Yu, King of Kings from Wade Wade was my absolute favourite for many, many years because of the, the atmosphere in the tune. I don't know if you remember it. The, yeah, those Yabby Yu tunes are like wicked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had real big influence on me, you know, rockers, Yabby Yu, Studio One, all of them. And then going into the 80s, tunes like Guiders Jar from Johnny Clark and Promised Land from Dennis Brown. But if I have to isolate one, it has to be Roots Natty from Gladiators, mm-hmm. the original Studio One cut, because mm-hmm. boy, all those tunes that I've called, they're all tunes that have a message in them, yeah? Because that was so important to me as somebody coming up in the music that it was linked to the spiritual side of things. All the tunes I was listening to we're all singing about the conquering lion or the king of kings or roots natty or these kind of things. So it was a teaching for me on my journey as a Rastafarian, right? And so the gladiators tune, roots natty, where they're singing about walking on the streets of gold. And then it goes into a lyric about, please tell me if I'm wrong, but is there any difference between black and white? You know, and that was so crucial in that time for me just to hear that lyric. They're strong lyrics, aren't they? Strong lyrics. Yeah, but especially the thing about black and white, because I was coming up and I started going to sound system when I was young and things, and I was trying to equate all this, these things I was seeing around me as a teenager, you know? There was things on the television, like, I don't know if you remember, like this Roots series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that thing was going on. And Thatcher, we were living in Thatcher's Britain, you know? There was the miners' strike, Brixton riots, all of this was going on. And it was 
Like for me, I was looking for answers to so many things. So where, where were you brought up then? Were you in North of England, is that right? Yeah, man, West Yorkshire is my, my yard, original yard. Yeah, born and bred in Bradford, you know, and lived in Keithley and around Huddersfield, Leeds, all them places when I was growing up. Um, and it had a big influence on me, bro. You know what I mean? It, 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 I lost you, Neil. First of all, living in a, cult, a multicultural society, you know? And going through all of that was quite a dramatic thing, you know? You know, a lot of people focus on, like, the London thing, but there was a lot going on in the north of England back in those days. I mean, you, you and you were going to dances that back Oh, yeah, for real, man. I mean, play, places like Leeds, Bradford, Huddersfield were bubbling in them times, you know? What, what kind of sounds were you encountering? Ooh, oh, my gosh, I have to really think. Uh, sounds like Earth Rocker, Scorcher, Turbo... Turbo Charge, I think they were called, and Jalion was another one from, from Huddersfield. And I used to go to play, you know, all these different clubs, Cleopatra's in Huddersfield, Palm Cove in Bradford, West Indian Centre in Leeds. But you have to remember that time there, I wasn't, um, I wasn't the person that I am now. You get me? Mm -hmm. I was coming up. A yeah, young man. Oh, bless, I was coming up, you know, going through all this madness that was going on in West Yorkshire and all this political situation in England at the time, you know? Like I said before, I really remember the miners' strike as being some, some significant thing in Yorkshire, you know what I mean? It was like a, like a war, wasn't it? Like a war. Bless, it was a war. It was a war, you know, and it was this war against Thatcher's Britain. And the way that she was treating people, amongst others, black people, and that's why the Brixton riots all came around, about, you know? And, and when I was at places like, I went to the Brixton riots and it was just mad, man, you know? And as I said, I was trying to equate all this inequality that was going on in Britain as a youth growing up, thinking, why, this is strange, you know? Some people get treated badly, some people get treated good. Other people get completely ostracized and set out of society because of their colour, their race or their religion. And it, it didn't feel right to me, bro, you know what I mean? It, 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 I, and that's where it all started for me. And going to dances as a rebel youth, you know, not as a rasty youth, I was just a, a youth, a Yorkshire youth going to dances and checking them and, and trying to make some kind of sense out of it, to be honest with you, you know, coming from a different cultural background. Um, yeah, because how was it as a, as a white guy going to these dances? Because back in the day, it was like, you know, very different scene to like how we see things now. Oh, bless. It was, yeah, it was dread. It was dread, to be honest. But, you know, imagine I was a guy, I was a punk going there with white bleached hair, you know, with my sister and her boyfriend and, and you know, just being thrust into this completely different environment. And, and, you know, that was a time of abuse also, drinking and drugs and all those kind of things, you know, as, yeah, when you're young, as one you do does. Crazy things. Yeah, 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 as a teenager growing up, you know. Um, but that period of destruction, the punk period, didn't really last that long, you know? Because as I said, I was a youth, a thinking youth, I was examining all these kind of things, and I was thinking, yeah, well, we can destroy everything because we don't like it, but what's going to happen then? You know, and there was no answer to that. The punk, the punk scene didn't really give us an answer to that. It was about destroy, destroy, destroy. And so, as I was growing up and going to punk concerts, the first, the first punk concerts at Leeds, Leeds University and things, there used to be sound systems playing. 
because there was no records. They didn't have punk records. They were just live bands. And that kind of started that vibe I was getting before and after the thing, the shows, the, the, the live shows, was feeding my spirit somehow, you know? You're talking about like a reggae sound system playing at like a punk gig. Yeah, bless. Yeah, proper, proper contrast. You know what I mean? You'd have the stage and you could see it all set up for the Sex Pistols or whoever it was was coming. And then I decided of two massive stacks of sound system. And before the band played, the sound system was playing. And, and the punks were vibing off the reggae music? Uh, some, some of them were, you know, because that was a time also when, when certain tunes was coming out from Bob, I think, you know, it was, people were trying to connect the two of them together, both being rebel, rebel things, you know. And for me, I really did make that connection. And it was, it was the start of a long journey, my brother, you know, that I, I had to know what was behind the music. That was the, f okay, you get, you love the bass, you love the, the whole atmosphere of it. But then, you know, in a place like Cleopatra's or Palm Cove, you could really feel it was something more than that. It wasn't just music, it was something more than that. And that's what started me on this, this long journey now to find out what is Rastafari. Because, you know, at that time, we're talking about sounds who were taking their name from Ethiopia or from His Imperial Majesty or from this and that. It was very late 70s, early 80s. It was very prominent in, in, in our roots music, you know? So... Yeah, it was like a serious, serious business. Yeah, really, really a serious business, you know? And, and for me, okay, some people, some people just come and listen to music and really enjoy the music, but I was kind of so inquisitive, I suppose, that I had to find out what was behind it. So I start reading a lot, you know, me and my brethren, IRC, and we used to watch all the videos, Deep Roots music, all those things that was around them time, you know? This is obviously, for people listening, so long before any kind of internet stuff. So you, you had to dig deep to kind of find information about stuff. It was like... For real, bless. Like, for real. It was, <laughs> you had to go on a journey. Yeah, man, for real. And we used to stay up at night and listen to Rodigan, because Rodigan used to be doing Forces Radio from Germany for some reason. We used to stay up and religiously listen to Rodigan, because he was playing tune, you know? And then we used to go from Yorkshire, I used to remember hitchhiking down and go down. Um, not Dub Vendor, Dub Vendor came later as a shop for me. I used to go to Daddy Cool. And I used to go there and, and try and find the records that Rodigan had been, uh, yeah, Rodigan had been playing. Or even John Peel, because them time John Peel was dropping a few reggae tunes, I don't know if you remember. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's always supported it from the start. He's yeah. Been, like, and so many people, like, they call his name out in interviews and whatever. See, because he's kind see. of, he's championed, championed the music from the start. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. So he was, like, rushing down to London and, and trying to find these tunes and making a complete fool of yourself in the shop, you know, and trying to... <laughs> trying to sing, sing. There's a certain etiquette in like reggae shops back in the day that it's like, yeah, you gotta you gotta learn how it works. Bless, I don't think people, like you say, people don't understand now this this new internet generation. You know, I can tell a kind of story. I used to work in um, I used to work in a design office because yeah, that's what happened in my career in my working career. I became a graphic designer, and I was living in London. And working for a big design office in Notting Hill. 
So around the corner was Dobvend in Lubbock Grove. So when it came to lunchtime, instead of sitting at this big table with all these people talking about design issues, Brother Neil just kind of escaped from the building and went round to, to the Dob Vendor shop, you know, the one in Ladbroke Grove underneath the tube station. Mm -hmm. He used to go down the stairs and get into this tiny little shop. And boom, it was like straight away coming out of this strange world, going back into my world. Boom, the first bass beats I hear coming out of there. And, but full up at lunchtime, 20 people in this tiny little shop. And you come in and you can only hold that little space at the back. You don't get anywhere near the counter, bro. You know, you know them vibes, Steve. Anyway, that, and then, you know, gradually the money get to know you after a few weeks, you know, of holding your hand up. You have up. to build up that trust. You have to build up that, like, okay, because these records are, they're precious items. I haven't got many of them. They need to go to the right people. I'm not going to give them to some random dude that's walked true, in. It's true, true. Kind of, you have to, like, you know, okay, then this guy, he can have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Prove yourself a little bit, innit? And, you know, and then in the end, you kind of, start doing like everybody else. You have the man plays, just for the people who don't, who, was, who wasn't there and didn't know about it, the man used to play maybe two seconds of the tune and the needle was bam, back off again and 20 hands go in the air, yeah man, yeah man, yeah man, yeah man, yeah man. And then everybody gets this kind of pack of tunes building up on the counter and then when it's time you pay and you go. And they'd have like little mini sound systems in the shop as well, wouldn't they? Hey. You're not listening to it on some tin pan speaker, you, you're hearing it kind of, you know, you wouldn't want to live next door to a reggae record shop back in the day unless you were like a proper fan. See, see, see. No, for real, but that was part of the sales technique, isn't it? You know, if you drop the bass like Shaka or someone, one of the big sounds was dropping, then why? Yeah, man, that's it, I recognise it. Yeah, man, that one. And everybody go mad in the shop and it gets sold out. But that's how, to be honest with you, this big reggae collection I've got, this big collection of singles and original vinyl, 12 inches, comes from many, many, many years of standing in those shops, you know? And it's so dread. You must look at the records and remember, like, I bought this here and I remember this going on and it's like, because it's, it's, it's a mission to get those tunes and it's like you know, each one's got a story, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, man, for real. I mean, Jamaica, we used to go and comb Jamaica, you know, way back early days, even before the Japanese got there and bought everything. You know, me and my brethren, a couple of us, we used to go and really go across the island from, from, from town, city, village, everywhere, looking for any kind of vinyl we could buy. You know? Did you find a few gems on those missions? Oh, of course. Man. I mean, one of my favourite places, it was... Um, it was in Kingston in Halfway Tree Road, which is quite a dread place, you know. Uh, hustle and bustle, busy, people everywhere. But it was a car parts place. And they sold, you know, they had all, you, you could look in the shop and you see all shelves and there was all different car parts from different cars there. But there was a little sign as I was walking past one day and it said, records with an arrow. And I thought, records? In the car, <laughs> in the car parts place. <laughs> and I went in, bro, and the man, he had pure killer tunes, pure massive tunes, you know, from the 70s, 80s. And so a lot of them came from him, you know, but I had disappointments as well. Other guys that say, yeah, I've got, you know, I'd call tunes like Hugh Mondell and this and that, Johnny Clark, you got that. Yeah, man, we have them, we have them all, come round my yard. And you go around the house and they, yes, they did have them, but everyone was scratched like you, you, couldn't, you couldn't play it again, you know? So it was... It, like that. 
keep, like keeping your records in the chicken coop or something. Yeah, yeah, you know, propping up a shelf over there or a cupboard or something, you know. So you're obviously showing a lot of kind of, you know, you're talking about hitching down to London, flying out to Jamaica. Like, it's obviously showing a lot of, like, you know, commitment and kind of, you know, you, you seem to get into it. Yeah, bless it. You know, as we say, as Razzies, it, it became my liberty, my life. Before, you know, when I start off on this journey of searching out Rastafari and really the connection with the music that we listen to, it, that was all part of it, you know? And I guess at some point you, you made the transition over to Amsterdam as well because you say you were, you were working in London as a graphic designer, is that right? I mean, that was something that came by itself, yeah, you know, after working a few years in, in design office in London. I needed to get out of there, man, you know? London, I love it, it's buzzing, but at the same time, it can eat you up, it can yam you up, you know? Yeah, it's hard work. Hard work. As I respect anybody living over there, you know? But still, I I, I saw the sense of Jack guiding me to come out of there. And the natural thing for me was to come to Amsterdam. I was already... I used to ride big motorbikes also, Steve, and I, I, at the weekend after I'd finished work in London, I used to jump on my GPZ 900. Zoom across to Amsterdam and sit in coffee shops all weekend. I, you know, I have to be honest with you. It's not far <laughs> if, if you've got a fast machine like that. It's not far from London to Amsterdam, is it? Especially really? when you're smoking a spliff. It went like... And you felt you felt the pull from Amsterdam then once you'd started because it is a lovely city. I mean, it's from, I've never lived there as you know, but I've visited so many times and it's got a, it's got a pull to it. Yeah, you know it, bro. You know, it's a very special city. It doesn't matter where I go in the world. Whenever I come back and I come back in this city and the coffee shops are there and the people relaxed and what was it like back then? Because it must have been different to how it is now. Hey, bless it, it was militant, you know. Amsterdam, I was talking to Joseph about it the other day. Amsterdam's been a real, real militant. You know, it was a time of squatter of the squatters. So I was telling him a story about the first time I was here after I moved here, I think, and and I was out at night time doing something and then coming back. And the whole of, I think it was Rosenkracht, or one of them was all on fire. Like there was about five different cars on fire. And I was like saying to people from Amsterdam, was weird, what, what, what's been happening? And I saying, yeah, yeah, it's a squatting movement. It's very militant at the moment. And, you know, that was something that I got into as soon as I came here. Not that I was squatting, but the radio thing, you know, people ask me now about healing of the nations. And I say, yeah, but it's not a new thing for I because we used to do a squat radio program on Radio 100, which was the real, I mean, it was mad, man. He used to walk through Amsterdam and every other house was a squat and they used to be playing Radio 100, banging it out every day, you know, real radio, not internet radio, on a frequency. Is a squat scene... The squat scene was crazy because it's like the UK squat scene was always like addled with drugs and craziness. But in, in Europe, there always seemed to be this kind of political and cultural movements around it. As true, well. true, true. Just a bit more kind of, you know, positive stuff happening, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was about. You know, it was it was about trying to get some positive change because the situation of, of, of speculators buying up properties and just leaving them empty. That, that can't go on in a place like Amsterdam that's already short of housing. So it was a protest from people and students. And, and yeah, it was it was an exciting scene because people was full of rebellion. <laughs> you get me? I, have, I, I feel now in this time, people have lost their, their edge, you know? They've lost the rebellion, they've lost that fight that we... Yeah. 
people have been kind of pacified a bit, haven't they, with like technology and sort of few more luxuries in life. Yeah, subdued by things, man. Whereas, you know, we, in our time being young, I used to go to the picket line, you know, I used to go see what, I used to go to the riots. I used to go do them things because I felt it's my responsibility. The way that I think, you know, to be, to be part of a rebellion and not just sit on your beep and accept everything that Babylon tell us, you know, Babylon being the system. No, no, for real. It was kind of there was a there were big political movements, and young people were involved in political things and were fighting for change. And you know, people were enjoying themselves as well. But it was kind of whereas now, it seems to be people just want to enjoy themselves and don't really bother. Hey, that's a, but but that, but that's yeah no, but that's an interesting point, Steve. Because I think you know the whole rave techno scene. I don't want to chant it down at all. You know, there's a lot. There was a lot of energy in it and things, but. I think that took away a lot of people's characters indeed, that they just want to party, man. Oh, fuck it. We just want to party. That is just crazy. So, so, like, talking about Amsterdam, and obviously, you know, everyone knows you now as, like, King Shiloh Sound System. So how did the King Shiloh Sound System kind of get formed in Amsterdam? I mean, why, why, why build a sound system in Amsterdam and... What was going on in Amsterdam then? I mean, were there sounds? Playing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is one that's, that's quite important, you know. That okay. So I'm a youth coming from England. I've got this big reggae, reggae collection. Um, I'm settling into Amsterdam life, getting realizing that the squat scene is where the music is being played and being promoted. As usual, Jagai don't protect me. And one day, there was a knock at my door. This was in the first year I was living in Amsterdam and, and there was a knock at my door and there was a guy there, I opened it up and he said, all right, mate, with a thick Yorkshire accent. So I said to him, all right, mate. And he said to me, you don't know me, is it? I said, no. He said, I was uh, in Bradford the year before you at Bradford Foundation, our class, right? A guy called Jack. I said, oh, I'm seeing, man, come in. I'm going to smoke a split fan. I started to play some tunes, and he said to me, oh, you got a lot of tunes. He said, I've got, I've got a radio program on Radio 100 every week, every Saturday from 8 to 10. But I ain't got no records. Can he come and help me? <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course. And that's how it started, Roots and Culture on, on Radio 100. And it became, it became really a, an institution for people. You know, every week people would sit by the radio to tune in and, that time we were, I was buying a lot of brand new tunes, you know, from Dob Vendor and things, playing old tunes and stuff. Um, so it was quite an exciting time, but it was also a time, you asked me why. Okay, so you've got this place, Amsterdam, herb shops everywhere, should be a reggae place, right? But, really, but it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't, bro. You could go in the shops, you know, they'd have a red, gold and green thing flying above the shop. And you'd go in and you'd think, yeah, man, there's going to be my people. Oh, no, they're listening to some, some kind of weird something, you know? Yeah, you get in Hotel California playing or something in the, in the reggae bar and it's like, yeah. I remember going when in the early 90s going over to smoke back in the day and going to the reggae bar and it being not very reggae. No. No, so it, it became a mission. You know, music is a mission for me through the years. And it became a mission. There was a sound system here called Shashamani. Big sound system. Mm -hmm. Suriname people. 
Um, they had a big sound and it was, they were playing dancehall. They were playing a lot of slackness and dancehall. This combined with the coffee shops, combined with me playing on Radio 100, combined with the big reggae collection. That was the starting of King Shiloh. Yeah, I started bringing sounds from England, right? And at the very first dance, um, it's a sound, an English sound called Rastafari chant. doesn't exist anymore, but anyway. Um, there was this one guy came up to me, a dread, and he said, hey, Bredrin, are you going to do this more often? And I said, yeah, for sure, bless. I'm even, I'm starting a sound system too. And he said, ah, I'm a singer. I said, oh, okay, let's meet next week. We met next week and it was Red Lion. And we had such airy, airy vibe together, you know. And I said... And still there to this day, isn't it? Still there. All of that, you know, even even Majestic B, because he was the one who came in like, I can't remember time scale, but me and Lion set it up and then B came in, you know. So it was the three of us for many, many years. And, and that, I think, has really always has been the strength of Shiloh, you know. Well, I think people see, um, they see, obviously, see you selecting and whatever, but I think people have a sense that it's a family and they see that it's, it's never one person there, there's always a group of people around the sound and around the control tower. I think that kind of family thing has always come across. Oh, give thanks. I'm glad to hear that, Steve, because it's it, it's very important to me, you know. It's like often people see my face everywhere. They see people maybe think it's just Brad and Neil, but it's not. It's a real, it's a whole family. It's a team of people, you know. It's been 30 years I'm working with Doc Creator. You know, making yeah. rhythms and tunes together. It's not no new thing. You know, Lyrical Benji, one of my first ever MCs. Oh, what a voice. Yeah, you know, we were talking about Jam Melody a little while ago. I, I still know him as Bagatti because he used to be Bagatti in them time. You know, but I've always tried to promote the Amsterdam thing, Steve. It's, it's been important to me because I really feel... Well, I don't know if you remember, but I remember when we met, which I think was 1997... Mm -hmm. And you guys were playing at the Milky Way yeah. at the Cannabis Cup thing, yeah. which was a very smooth. <laughs> yeah, give thanks. Um, and I, I, I just started making music myself, and I, I started to do, and I did had this tour all around Europe, ah, yeah. and it was a total eye-opening experience for me. It was like, okay, <laughs> so people do like kind of reggae music mm -hmm. and dub mm -hmm. music outside of the UK, yeah, yeah. but boy, is it a different scene over here. Yeah. And it's kind of, yeah. you know, when you think back to how the scene is now and how kind of developed it is, then back then it was like, you know, people liked the music, but there wasn't so much stuff happening then, was there? No, man, it, it was really the, you know, the stone that the builder refused become the head cornerstone. You know, we went through hard times in Amsterdam trying to, I suppose I realize now it was a teaching, you know, that people had to come in from England. That it was in me, you know what I mean? Sound system, the whole vibe was in me, the tunes that you play, everything was in me. But for people here, they had to learn about it. And it was a very slow process that went through many different, you know, Jack take us through many different stages. And really one of the, the biggest things was we got contracted to play at Paradiso on Milky Way. Before and after, it's like a legendary venue. Both, I mean, the, both of them is probably the two most famous venues in 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 Holland, and both in Amsterdam, within two hundred meters of each other. You know, you've played in them. Uh, 
but we got contracted. You know, they started listening to the, they heard us on the radio and they started seeing the little sessions we were doing and said, yeah, we want to be, we want you guys to be part of it, you know? And, and some persuasion from us as well. I think even maybe Lionel said, no, it was us that went to them and said, listen, you need a sound system to play before the band. Because as I remember it, he used to come in Paradiso, which is like 1500 people capacity. And mm-hmm. everybody was there just waiting until the road manager came on stage to introduce Bernie Spear. And so, I th- yeah, it was, it was actually, we went to them and said, look, you need to have music as a build-up, as a warm-up. And so we started playing warm-up and after parties, so before and after the band. And after a while, I started taking my Tobis preamp in there. Well, actually, right from day one, I took my Tobis preamp in there and linked it into the Paradiso sound. It was more Paradiso in them times we played it. And people started to love it, you know, really love it, see, but there were some people before, and especially after, you know, they just seen Bernie Spear and they're all high. Usually they just used to get thrown out onto the street and that's it, guys, and I come back next week and got culture. Instead... And also for Burning Spear to have a crowd that's warmed up of people that have started moving and whatever, it's like, you know, that's you're doing a good job for him as well oh, was for the band. Blessed. Kind of, it was massive, you know. And then coming on to like a cold crowd. You know? Yeah, they all used to love it because, of course, I was always setting up in the beginning when um, when they were doing their sound check. You know, like my first record was after they'd finished their sound check. Like Joseph Hill used to come to me every time and look at the Tobby's preamp and go, Why, how much you want for that thing there? And I used to tell him every time, you know, I really used to come three times a year. So many, many times I told him, Hey, listen, Joseph, it's not for sale. He said, Why? I need that for me, like a sound in Jamaica, you know, Bredrin. Things like that. And the other the other story was about Bernie Spear, because you call his name. They always wanted me to be in a booth upstairs, you know, playing a paradiso. But I insisted, no, I'm on the floor next to the people. You know, it's so important. Um, so it was a packed. I think Bernie Spear was even playing Friday and Saturday night. We sold out both nights. And it was on the Friday night. We'd all just finished work and rushed, rushed the paradiso. We were convention rushing around. <laughs> Used to meet there sweating after a day's work and set up the preamp and everything with the engineer and then boom at the showtime. But it was just before he was supposed to come on stage. Next to me, I felt the dread tap me. And I looked to my right as I was playing the tune, and it was Spear. And he like winked at me and I winked back. And he said, um, he like, gestured to say, give me the mic. So we give him the mic and he started singing. Bless. He started, it was a cordless mic that we had from Paradiso. He started singing. No, 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 sorry, I'm wrong. He had the cordless mic in his back pocket. That was it when he came. And he just started singing through the house PA while the sound was playing. (laughs) And he walked through the crowd and people didn't know it was him. And he was singing the first tune all the way. He was walking through the and he climbed up on the side. Everybody's cheering and thinking, I was thinking, yeah, that was with Winston Rodney who was just next to me, <laughs> you know? That's the thing, those, those moments of like, when you when you interact with, with the people who are your musical heroes or whatever, it's like this amazing. Yeah, but that's, that's what makes it so, you know, like in these times people is saying to me, 
why are you just playing revived tunes or mostly revived tunes on the Healing of the Nations radio programs? It's because that's my foundation. You know what I mean? That's where, for me, that's where, oh, it's come from, man. And it's just so pure and clean. And, 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 and when somebody's singing certain lyrics, you know you really mean it and it's coming from his heart, you know? I think not to say people don't do that these times, but it's 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 completely different. You know, it's a completely different scene. Yeah, there's something about those old tunes. There's a magical thing, definitely, and it's like, yeah, yeah, incredible stuff, incredible stuff. And you've kind of you've always had you've always like held a corner in Amsterdam, haven't you? You've always had some kind of residency and kind of you know. This, you've, you've always like you know flown the flag there from what I've seen yeah yeah for, for real bless it you know like I say we see it as our duty to do that to maintain a certain why what, what can I call it a certain integrity in the, in the sound system scene you know because mm. things can deteriorate quite quickly we're also realizing in this time now that we're coming from a generation, you know, the Shaka generation, and then after that, Chanawan, Irishan, Shanti, all of us. We're coming from a different generation, and I'm worried about what the next generation is going to do, yeah? It really, really worries me, because me, Rastafari has given me so much in my life, Steve. It really, you know, through, through listening to these tunes, these humble tunes, and, and, and working out the message and working out everything about it, it's led me to Ethiopia, you know? A new, a new challenge completely. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Ethiopia because it's like that's one of the things I was interested to talk to you about because obviously Shiloh is one of the sounds that's reached out yeah. to Ethiopia and you, you've you've visited there and you've done things and set things up and um, I was wondering, you know, I've never visited. I'd love to go yeah. some, on my yeah. list of places to check out for sure. Um, what, what's it like over in Ethiopia? <laughs> well, that's a big question as well, Steve. It's a bit different to Amsterdam, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Africa is a different thing completely. I, Africa is Africa. That's all I can say. It's just by all the skills that I gained through my life, you know, through different through different vocations and stuff, and couldn't even prepare me for Africa. I mean, first thing, Addis is 2,600 meters above sea level. So you arrive there, you come on the plane in the first couple of days, seriously, you're, you're acclimatizing, you know? It's gasping for breath as you go up hills, even, you know, like I tell you, Thea, sitting next to me, young, you were still gasping going up the hills, you know, you have to really acclimatize. And it's, Ethiopia is a test, it's not for the faint-hearted, it's a test on many, many levels, you know? Um, but I love, I love the place, you know. I just love the struggle. I love everything about it, you know. We have actually now, we've got an eight scoop sound system. You going to say, what kind of stuff are you do? Oh, bless. It, I mean, everything's kind of ground to a halt, of course, because of this lockdown thing, because Africa's also in lockdown, you know. We're also wearing masks and all this kind of business. So we're uncertain. We've got our man Joshua's down there at the moment checking things. Things could start up quite quickly again, and we hope so, you know, because we'd established the Addis Dog Club in Addis Ababa, which was, phew, yeah, it was a once yearly event, twice yearly event. That was kind of the most we could get down there, get, not down there, get up there, up in the mountains, you know. Um, in our program because we saw we were so busy last year in Europe. 
but we get we try to go there as much as possible. So we have an eight scoop sound system, not some broke down sound system, something that's worthy of this kingly country, you know. Um, and we do sessions, bless. There's a community. And what what are the sessions like? People go into the yeah, sessions? you know, it's 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 not like here, you know, we're not getting five hundred people at a session yet. Although we've had fifty thousand at a session, <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah, well, it, it's like we do our sessions, okay? And and the rest of the community, if we play in Addis, then the rest of the community will spend eight hours to come up from Sheshamani to visit the dance. Um, if we play in Sheshamani, dance full, no doubt about it. Um, yeah, that was one of the highlights when we played in Sheshamani at Brother Desmond's yard, who was one of the pioneers first people, first settlers to go to, to Ethiopia many, many years ago. And he invited us to play in his yard and we thought, yeah, yeah, we'll go and do it. You know, we played on this sound called King's Highway Sound. And I regret it, but it's, the sound's a bit broke down. We we're kind of skeptical about it, but the whole community came out and that was such a vibe and incredible, you know, and brother, brother Desmond was shedding a couple of tears, I swear, you know just through the joy and for me to play tunes like let's go to zion from winston francis and Jano dead from Studio burning One. spear and play those tunes that that made people go to not made people but encouraged people to go to africa to ethiopia you know it was such a pleasure to be able to play those tunes back for the community whose life there is not easy you know it's, it, it can be a very joyful life, but it can also be a very volatile life, you know, because politics. I was going to say, there's a lot of crazy politics going on there, and I'm guessing a disparity of wealth and kind of issues around moving around the country, all, all kinds of different sort of challenges, I'm guessing, are going on over there. Yeah, it, it is really. It's, uh, yeah, you know, it gets worse, and then it gets better again, and then it gets worse again. And it's just very volatile. I mean, the geographical position of Ethiopia, it's so, it's such a blessing that it holds this positive, this positive balance between Christianity and Islam. You know, I don't know what the proportions is now, but it always used to be 49% Christian and 49% Muslim. And when you look at some of the countries surrounding Ethiopia, you know, particularly countries like Somalia, how how Ethiopia is remaining so peaceful on that level. Okay, there's certain tribal things going on, but on a religious level, it's holding firm. In His Majesty's time, people did not have differences on the grounds of religion, you know, or on color, by the way, that they didn't recognize those things as being issues if a man had a different color skin to another man's skin, for instance. You know, so Ethiopia is a magical place, Steve. When you go up north to the Simeon Mountains and you top of the world, you know, you can go down to the Den. Yeah, I'd love to check it out. Go to the Denakil, Denakil Desert. You're on the lowest place in, on earth. You know, it's, uh, yeah, anyway, it's an invite. Yeah, when you're ready, Steve. We can go, bro. I'm there. Yeah, I'm booking my ticket. Yeah, man, for real. And you, you have you have some more plans to do some more stuff over there, kind of when you know when things change. We really want to highlight Ethiopia as a as a relevant place. You know, so a lot of Ethiopians are saying, "But but Shiloh, this is the home. This will be the home of reggae music." You know, 
So they're feeling, certain people is feeling it there too. Nice. Well, talking about like sound system and kind of, you know, sort of hosting stuff or whatever, one thing I'm quite interested to talk about is is like your weekender as well, which has become, you know, quite a, an event in the calendar. And, you know, we had the luck of playing there a few years ago, obviously. And what, what kind of surprised me, really, surprise is the wrong word, but like I kind of like, what really pleased me was to see people from all over Europe that had come to Amsterdam for that weekend and it really kind of felt like a festival rather than a standard event in a city, if you like. Right, we, we started doing two things really simultaneously in, in the same year, I think about six, seven years ago. We started doing the weekenders and we also started doing a thing called the Fridays Dub, which is, there's a day when Holland was liberated from, from the Germans at the end of the war. Same like in England, you know, Liberation Day, and that was the 5th of May. And so we started doing sessions on that day just for the Dutch people at, at the place where we, we used to build our boxes at our locker, which is the NBSM in Amsterdam North, the kind of forgotten shipyard. Um, uh, is that that bunker place that we played? Oh, bless, that's where, yeah, you know all about that. That was kind of like, well was a real missionary move as well, you know? A sound system, yeah, yeah, you don't have loads of money to find a lockup, so you find a place, you know? And luckily through through Majestic B and, and a guy called Dob Twan, who was a shipbuilder, we found an old shipyard, started setting up our things in the old shipyard. <laughs> and then moved to the place that you know as the bunker, which was underneath where they used to build the ships. And those were the legendary bunker sessions that people talk about even to this day where, you know, we were busy next door and yeah, usually it was me and Wojtek and we used to build all these things, build new boxes, change amplifiers, you know, do all kinds of things. And then in the evening, on a Friday evening, people who worked at the shipyard used to have, they used to eat their dinner there and drink enough beer and things. And we used to put our speakers inside and just start playing, like to do sound check. And then people started building a big bonfire outside when we were playing and then more. And it starts to become and a thing. And it started to become a thing before we knew it. People was coming there. And, and the beautiful thing about it was the walls was made of like 30 centimeter thick concrete. So yes, you're not going to be disturbing we wasn't disturbing anybody and we could really test the sound to its fullness, you know, and that's, those were like that was the proving ground, what I call the proving ground. Those two or three years playing in the bunker was really when we learnt how to control. I remember when we played there, we had a great time, really, and still remember kind of you know certain places. You just get a great feeling where everyone is there for that thing, and they're getting it, and it's kind of yeah. It was massive, you know, man. Just the vibes, right? Massive, man. I remember when you came with Madhu and. Um... Oh, and Germania and, and people that tune from Germania people had been going crazy about it because we've been playing it all the time and then when he actually came it was so yeah great yeah, to yeah, see yeah. people because that's you know inevitably that's what we do this thing for is for people you know I want to emphasize that it's not for we don't do it for ourselves really you know from when Jack called you to do a work you can't watch things like money and you can't watch things like fame or fortune, you know, really. Uh, yeah. 
It seems to be a similar kind of vibe at the weekend or at the Milky Way. Yes, I, kind of, yeah, you know. yeah. Man. That's that's what we try to have. You know, we don't like a festival in the middle of the winter. I mean, that's what you want. Yeah, man. You know, we have to choose the worst day possible because the summer's full up of. You know, if people choose between going to Amsterdam and sitting inside somewhere in August, or they can go to South Spain or South Italy, you know, we can't compete with that, but we can give them the warmth in the winter, you know? How I remember it in Yorkshire. Yeah, it's tough, man, tough winters. Same in Poland, eh, Matty? It's tough winters, it's snow and it's cold, but it gives... When you get inside. You, it gives you some kind of extra vibe, you know what I mean? You've overcome something. Yeah, but we're there, you know? We've made it. This is sort of, and Amsterdam is just the sort of place that people love to visit as well because of, you know, because of, of weed and a certain sort of sense of freedom in the city and whatever and a sort of relaxed vibe. It's like, you know, it's a great place to host people in, I guess. So it all kind of helps. Yeah, it's kind of logical, Steve, when you think about it, you know, that we had to do, we're not promoters, not at all, but still through the years, the many years of trodding these, these roads of Babylon, we learned many things along the way. You know, so it's just our little, it's our little take on something. You know, two nights of sound system, we tried to keep one night a bit more revived and the other one new, new, new. And just two nights of extreme pleasure for everybody who's coming. <laughs> so it's about smoky spliff in comfort don't worry about nothing well, speaking of like sessions and stuff as well is it's like you know you seem to have taken the sound all over you know especially all over Europe I know you've been to UK many times with it as well but really all over Europe like all the time and it's kind of it's amazing I'm always amazed by how many sound systems there are across mainland Europe that like you know when we both started a long time ago you know, they, they didn't exist, this kind of scene. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing how much has changed. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we've, we've played our part in that too, that, you know, the amount of people that contact me and, and asking advice about things. And, you know, along the way, when, you, when you're playing in somebody's yard and, you know, they're always asking advice and just to be welcoming, to give it, you know? But you were determined to take the sound back in those days as well. And that wasn't, you know, it's a quite, quite a foolhardy thing to do, really, isn't it? It's like, take a sound system to another country yeah. where people don't really know what they're going to be getting. True, true. But again, it's going back to that thing when I said before, it's all or nothing for me. If I'm a sound system, I have to take my sound system. If I'm a raster man, I have to praise John. You know, there's no kind of, like, two ways about anything. And so from day one, Started taking places. It's never, yeah. They, I mean, most places in Europe. Don't get me wrong. I was remembering, for instance, going to Rome, Roma, back in the day, you know, and playing at Villaggio Globale, and already they had big sounds then in Rome, but it was still a big event for us to go there. You know, people was amazed. Well, away from Amsterdam and. Them days we were getting, in Italy especially, very big crowds, you know, and then going, we used to do a tour. Mm. We used to go, where was it? Yeah, we used to drive all the way down to Lecce. You remember Lecce? Right down. Of course, in the south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Salento region. First, we used to, it used to be Black Star Line, Marco. We used to organize it, right? I love Marco, by the way. We used to go to Bari. And stop off in Bari after about mm -hmm. 36 hours of driving from Amsterdam. I was going to say, it's a long old drive from Amsterdam to Bari. And we used to get caught by the cops and 
you know, customs in between Switzerland and Italy. No, your truck's too heavy. Go back. And what do you got in there? Let's have a look. Let's get the dogs. So many of those stories. But we used to make it, you know, because Joe was guiding us. And then, then we used to go down to lectures another five hours down the road and play that. So that was the first Friday and Saturday. Then we used to hang around in the south of Italy, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Oh, for real. I love it. And then, yeah, I know you do. Well. And then the next Friday, we used to play Napoli. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, first Roma on Friday. Another crazy place. Another crazy. And then, of all things, Napoli then, to finish it off. Naples. Um, you know, this place, man. We couldn't leave our truck for two seconds. You know, like people wanted to steal it while we were driving it. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be careful in Naples, definitely. And those roads, getting a big truck down those little roads. The massive, when they come to the session, they know how to enjoy themselves, you know. Yeah, I think the further you go down, the further south you get, you know, when you get to Sicily, you get really the ultimate, the, the big, big vibes. But yeah, those cities, Rome, Naples, massive, man. That's it. And there's so much driving to get there, but when you get there... It's a great place to be, obviously, but it's like it doesn't it doesn't come easy that kind of journey, does it? No, no, no. But like I said, for me it was it, it, it was always part and parcel of the job, I suppose. I never questioned it. You know, yeah, you're gonna get stopped by cops. You're gonna not have enough money to put gas in the truck. There's all kind of things you come across, man. It's incredible. You know? When when they did eventually break in our truck in Napoli, in Naples, it was yeah, it was quite a drama, but because you have to go through all the insurance things, you know, the hire company, because we always use hire companies for the reason that we don't want the truck to break down, you know, and if it does break down, then we're guaranteed to get another one within an hour yeah, or something. You don't want to be stranded anywhere. No, but when, when they broke in in Napoli, the company didn't even want to help us. They were like, no, you're on your own, mate. <laughs> You're in, you shouldn't have gone to the wild world. And I remember driving all the way back to Roma, like it's about a four-hour drive, just to find a Mercedes dealer that was willing to fix all the windows that they broke and the lock on the back. You know, it's just drama things, man. But that's that's what we used to do in between playing at the weekends. You know, we were doing all that, eating good food and fixing the truck and, and repairing boxes as well. It was really... You know, basic things. And, you know, we just look forward to when we can do all this stuff again. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of dread, eh? I don't know. I'm not, I don't know, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm checking things, man, but it's really, it's really hard to say what, what will happen in the end. I don't know. I think it's, it's some way of controlling us. I do know that, you know, my rebellious spirit is saying, no, watch it because Babylon is using it to control us. Um, and my version on that is if you keep people like animals and you keep people caged up like animals, one day they're going to start behave like animals. And that means busting out their cages. And you saw the first of it last weekend in Italy, right? In, in Naples, exactly the place we're talking about. They bust out and there was massive riots. And even the police was joining, joining the protesters, apparently. Yeah, it's going to be some crazy times ahead, definitely, definitely. 
Well, listen, we've been talking a while now, and it's like, I mean, there's so many things. When you've got such a long like life in reggae like you, there's so many things I'd love to talk about, about it, like the unique sound system design and the record label. I mean, there's just a, a million things and the, the, the worldwide travels you've been doing, but we'll have to like save that for part two, I think. So, Hey, bless. Yeah, you're on, you know, because I'm always glad to share my experiences because, like I say, it's a bad... It's a teaching, you know what I mean? I'm not saying... I'm not saying I'm the one who now everything, not by far, but I can't share the experiences that we've been through as a sound system. What I'm doing at the end of the podcast is I ask all the guests the same question, which is like, I've got my book of dub and I'm writing everyone's name in it. I'm going to write Neil King Shiloh. And I wonder what you'd want written next to your name, something you'd want associated with the work (laughs) you do, your own life in reggae. That's a hard one too. But I think, you know, the first thing that comes into my mind is he loved the life he lived and lived the life that he loved. Nice. You know? I think that really, that that sums it up for me, you know, without being religious or whatever, you know. Just just do that. Be true to yourself, Mm -hmm. people. I say to people all the time, just be true to yourself, you know. When I get criticism for being a white man, and, and, and being a Rastafarian and people try to test me on that issue. It just, it's my life, you know? It's been my life for the last 35 years almost. So who are you to challenge me on that without asking me why? I see that the commitment you've shown to it, it's not like, oh, I'm just doing this thing lightly. You know, no, it's a, it's a no, I thing. couldn't. I couldn't, Steve. You know yourself, bro. You know yourself. If in our in our scene, if you're not true to yourself, people will find you out. You know, people would have found me out long ago and go, "Ha ha, that white he's just faking it or something." No, for me, I've been on the journey. I found His Imperial Majesty, and it's given me so much joy and love. And I want to spread that amongst. My family, you know, if possible, and if they've got an open ear for it, I'm not a preacher. I don't want to preach to people by any means, you know. But to be able to share, look, when I came into this place, when I was a punk, I was a so-called antichrist, yeah, an anarchist. And I became a man of God through the life that I led and through the experiences I had in life took me always, always to jump, to say, no, you're not on your own. You were never on your own. You were born through Ja, as everybody is. And so everybody is equal in that way. Yeah, and in times like this, to have, you know, to have that kind of, that sort of faith to kind of, to rely on and fall back on, it's like, you know, to get us through these difficult times. Bless, it's, it's so important, Steve, really, and that's why, you know, on the Healing of the Nation show, I'm trying to tell people that have faith in the most. Uh, it, he will help you through this thing, you know, because I read Facebook. I see what different people are saying. You know, some people get weak at the knees. Some people start to cry. Some holler, like the tune I was playing on Saturday. Some holler, some are ball, you know, but some dance for joy. I, we have the joy, dance for joy. Bless. When all, when everything's been said and done, we still have what? We have life. We have life and we have to celebrate life in the best way that we can, you know? And stay positive and don't lose faith. That's all I can say. This thing done soon, man. Done soon. Yes, for real. For real. Well, 
Neil, that's a lovely place to like to leave it. That's like a great sentiment to like leave ringing in people's ears, definitely. So just want to say thanks for, for taking part in it. Thank you too, Steve. It's a real pleasure. You know, Bredrin from a long time. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, from the nice. first from the first dub plates they used to send me used to send me on, on dat on dat tapes. I can't I can't <laughs> even play them as well, brother. Kind of, they don't play anymore. But those no, that that was a lot of you know King Shiloh's selection in that in that period of time when we first started playing at the University of Dub and things. And I give thanks for that too. You know, you've always supported us and we've always supported you. Oh, no, definitely, definitely. I'd love to see that support from Shiloh, like from right back from the 90s. Definitely, yeah, it's man. important to me for sure. Yeah, man. Give thanks, Steve. A real pleasure, bro. Nice. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining me and Neil for this 23rd episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Life in Dub wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you're up to date with each new episode. Again, if you like the podcast, do tell your friends and family about it. Share it and help spread the show far and wide and help get these stories out. All the info you'll need about the show is at the website lifeindub.com and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast. <laughs>